Well, hello, and welcome to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and happy to have you with us again, or for the first time. We are uh, focusing today on the music of Dizzy Gillespie, and a particular part of his career, his early band-leading career, from 1945 to 1946. Now, during that period, uh, Dizzy was well known for beginning the bebop era of recording with Charlie Parker. He and Charlie Parker had a band together off and on throughout 1945 and into 46 when they both went out to California to Billy Berg's uh, club in Los Angeles. And then Dizzy returned shortly thereafter, but Berg stayed out there for about two years following. But Dizzy Gillespie recorded some very interesting sessions without Charlie Parker around the same time, and we're going to listen to those. Those tend to get swept under the rug a little bit because obviously the brilliance of Charlie Parker is the focus for a lot of people, as it well should be. And of course, Dizzy Gillespie's brilliance was very similar in many ways, except he was better adjusted, and he doesn't quite have the romance to his life that uh, Charlie Parker did for all of the dissolution and, and early death that... Uh, Charlie Parker, a.k.a. Bird, underwent. So Dizzy was born in Chira, South Carolina in 1917, and uh, his father was a band director, so he was able to try a whole bunch of different instruments as a boy. He learned piano very young, which he later said was a, a big part of his music education and was vitally important to his developing interest in jazz and jazz arranging and the uh, developments in bebop that he was to bring about in the 1940s as well. He started playing trumpet probably when he was about 11 or 12. He learned uh, from watching other people. He didn't have any formal lessons to begin with, although he rectified that later on. Right about the time he graduated from high school, he and his family moved to Philadelphia, where he started playing professionally with Frankie Fairfax's band and some other local groups as well. He uh, traveled into New York a number of times and caught the eye of several New York bands, including Edgar Hayes, who had a very fine Harlem-based band, and played with him for a while, and then joined Teddy Hill and his orchestra in New York in about 1937. Teddy Hill's band is a, a pretty forgotten group at the time. Teddy Hill was uh, the manager at um, the Apollo Theater later on, and he had a club um, that was pretty well known uh, in uh, New York as well. And uh, he was interested in young musicians and bringing them along, but he had a band in the middle 1930s that had some really outstanding soloists from the established swing school, people like Ben Webster and Chew Berry, Frankie Newton, so on and so forth. And uh, for Dizzy Gillespie to have joined that band when he was only 20 years old spoke very highly of his technical abilities, his reading ability, because this was a, a reading band. It was a pretty uh, well-organized band that did a lot of shows and uh, was uh, staffed by quite a few of the best black musicians in New York at the time. And uh, Dizzy made his first recording dates with that group as well. He played a solo on King Porter Stomp from 1937 that uh, shows a little bebop influence going along. We might play some of those at some point later. But um, this is a, a program for Dizzy Gillespie, the leader. He actually went to Europe with Teddy Hill's band uh, in 1937 during that time he was with them. And uh, he was uh, not invited. He was specifically uninvited to do a recording session over there that was led by the trombonist of the band, Dickie Wells. And uh, this was a recording session that was really uh, an outstanding one that was done in Paris that featured, I think, Django Reinhardt for a while and um, 
Howard Johnson, the great alto player who was from Boston, and uh, several other players as well, including the three trumpet players of the Teddy Hill Band, minus Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, Shad Collins was one of them, and the um, other trumpet player who was uh, brought in to sub for Dizzy was Bill Coleman, a great uh, swing and uh, earlier than swing era jazz trumpet player who had taken up residence in Europe during the 1930s. So the older players were not impressed with Gillespie's improvisations. They thought he was a little bit crazy uh, musically and otherwise, hence the nickname. After he left uh, Teddy uh, Hill's band, he joined Cab Calloway in 1939. That was another very big-name band uh, in terms of the African-American music establishment of the 30s and 40s. Probably the, the, the most prestigious band was, of course, Duke Ellington's, but Cab Calloway was a close second. Uh, the music that that band played wasn't as innovative as Ellington's, but they were considered to be the, 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 the Rolls-Royce of the, of the trade. Uh, Cab treated his men very well. He paid good salaries. Uh, they traveled very well. Even when they went to the, into the South uh, with all of the segregation and prejudice, uh, he had their own railroad car and things like that. So it was a, a very plum gig. And Dizzy recorded frequently with them and played many solos as well. His time came to an end with Cab Calloway in 1941 when Cab just couldn't take any more of Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, he thought that he had thrown a spitball at him uh, on stage, and he was irate about that. It turned out it wasn't Cab, or rather, it wasn't Dizzy Gillespie at all. It was mistaken identity, but it ended with Dizzy taking a couple of uh, slices out of Cab's leg with his knife, and uh, things did not go well after that. So that was it for Dizzy with Cab Calloway. He freelanced for a couple of years in New York. He played some recording dates with Ella Fitzgerald's band and Duke Ellington's band, some transcriptions, things like that. He also worked on doing arrangements, and he spent a good deal of time sitting in with groups and uh, getting to know some of the younger players who were coming up who were interested in the next style of jazz, which came to be known as bebop. He joined Earl Hines' band regularly in 1943 and toured with them for about a year, uh, and with him in that band was Charlie Parker, who had just come up from Kansas City. He had played with Jay McShann's band, and Hines was interested in the new things in music. He was a very forward-looking musician, and he hired quite a number of bebop uh, players in his band at the time. It was sort of an incubator of bebop. They did not record, however, because it was during the recording ban. Uh, I think there are some air shots available of them, but uh, no studio recordings. After a year or so, both Dizzy and Charlie Parker moved over to the band of Billy Eckstein. And uh, Eckstein had sung with uh, Hines uh, for a while, and he moved over and took some of the more progressive uh, players with him. And the Eckstein band was actually really more of a bebop big band, uh, and it did record frequently. Unfortunately, not before Charlie Parker left, but uh, Dizzy Gillespie had also left too. But even the recordings that were left over after that, uh, that had featured people like Gene Ammons and... Uh, um, Fats Navarro and people like that, it was a pretty respectable and impressive sounding group. But of course, bebop was more designed for small groups, and some of the innovations that came about from the jam sessions participated in by Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Bud Powell at Monroe's and uh, Minton's uptown in New York City. They emphasized fast tempos, virtuoso improvisations, extended uh, chord patterns, uh, 
more juicy uh, chord substitutions for already familiar popular songs and uh, faster melodies. They would create new melodies on the old chord progressions that they, they juiced up as well. And part of their interest in doing that was exclusion. They wanted to exclude some of the older musicians who had excluded them. So there's a little bit of tit-for-tat going on there. Dizzy Gillespie, for his, uh, uh, in his opinion, said that bebop really wasn't anything particularly new. It was a development of what had gone on before. By about 1944, people were starting to listen to this new music. Again, there hadn't been any studio recordings for a while, but we do have some air checks, we have some live recordings, we have some Armed Forces radio service broadcasts and things like that. And Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie had put together a group on Swing Street uh, in 1945, actually towards the end of 1944, I think, that had a rotating personnel, but usually included the two of them. Although, Charlie Parker was showing signs of his uh, drug addiction and he was very undependable, so Dizzy often hired another saxophone player or another player on some other instrument to be there just in case Bird didn't show up, and that continued through their association. So by the uh, mid-19, well, by 1945, um, recording companies were starting to listen to uh, this new music as well. And we have Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie showing up on all kinds of different recordings. Um, some for swing era groups. There was a wonderful one where they were both featured with Red Norvo's Select Sextet that also included Teddy Wilson and uh, Slam Stewart and Flip Phillips on tenor sax. Uh, there was a Clyde Hart All-Stars date that uh, was more of a swing date that uh, they had the bebop players on. Uh, it was also featuring Trummy Young on trombone. We'll talk about him in a couple of minutes. Dizzy uh, Gillespie started playing with some other groups as well. In 1945, early on, he recorded with a, I guess it was a kind of a pickup band that was led by the great bassist Oscar Pettiford. He was listed as king of the bass on the record label, in fact. And they did uh, three or four tunes, including uh, a two-part version of Empty Bed Blues, the Bessie Smith tune that was uh, covered here by a singer named Rubberlegs Williams, who was a very colorful character. I'm not going to play any of his recordings, but I encourage you to look him up. And he also did the Worried Life Blues. And uh, fortunately, there was time left over for one uh, instrumental number called Something For You, which featured Dizzy's playing. And for whatever reason, at the same date, which was January 9th, 1945, uh, we have the first recordings of the Dizzy Gillespie Sextet. No Charlie Parker here, but Dizzy was on trumpet, Trummy Young was on trombone, Don Bias on tenor sax, Clyde Hart on piano, Oscar Pettiford on bass, and Shelley Mann on drums. And these were musicians who had all worked with the Oscar Pettiford big band that recorded earlier in the day. The recording label was Manor, one of the many, many small record label, labels that sprung up in the middle 1940s. Uh, the technology was cheaper, and uh, with the um, recording band that I mentioned that was uh, instigated by the Musicians Union, uh, the big companies were being... Uh, kind of tied up in litigation, so there was more room for the, uh, the new players, the uh, smaller uh, organizations, to come in and make records and not be crowded out by the big guys. So we have the rise of uh, labels like Manor and Musicraft and Savoy and Dial and things like that that were key to developing the sound of this new music. So we're going to hear the four tracks that were done by the Dizzy Gillespie Sextet on that day, January 9th, 1945. I remember hearing these on a, um, 
a collection, I think it was called Swing Street, actually, uh, came out, I think it might have been Columbia Special Products that brought that out probably in the 70s. It was a uh, four or five album set, I think, maybe it was three or four, that had all kinds of groups from Swing Street, uh, from Dixieland up through Swing, and then into these bebop, early bebop groups as well. And these are recordings that are not talked about too much. It, they don't quite fit into any one category. I mentioned, of course, Dizzy Gillespie uh, being the prototype of, of bebop and, and one of the great instigators of that music. Clyde Hart was another interesting transitional figure. He was a piano player who um, had uh, played throughout the 1930s. He played with Cab Calloway's band. He played with a lot of swing groups. He was a very uh, well-respected piano player. And the only reason that he uh, uh, isn't better known is that he died of tuberculosis just a couple of months after these recordings and after uh, a date shortly thereafter that he led uh, that featured Dizzy and Charlie Parker and Rubberlegs Williams, by the way. I'd encourage you to go look up that set. Anyway, uh, he lived from 1910 to 1945, Clyde Hart. He was born in Baltimore and played a lot of wonderful recording sessions, small and big bands. Uh, Cab Calloway, Hot Lips Page, Lionel Hampton, a lot, of, a lot of great music from him. And he also wrote some interesting tunes as well. So he's on piano for this one. We have Oscar Pettiford, the great bass player. His biography is pretty well known. He played with Ellington and, and many, many other groups. He was a fine cello player, cellist as well. We have Shelley Mann on drums. He was uh, one of the few white players who was uh, accepted by the bebop fraternity at the time. He was more of a West Coast player, or he came to be known as more of a West Coast player. He played with um, uh, Woody Herman's band for a while and many others as well. Then in the front line with Dizzy Gillespie, we have Don Bias on tenor sax. Don Bias was a truly superb saxophone player who straddled the swing and the bebop era. He had a very big sound and a fantastic facility, as well as a great harmonic knowledge. Uh, he had played with some of the early territory bands, uh, Benny Moten, Terrence Holder, Walter Page, and so forth, in Oklahoma, where he was from, and all the way up through Kansas City. Uh, he came to New York in the 30s. He played with a number of groups, Lionel Hamptons, Don Redman, uh, John Kirby's, Benny Carter's, the list goes on and on. But he really made a name for himself between 1941 and 43 when he played with Count Basie's band. He was actually Lester Young's replacement, or permanent replacement, and uh, he didn't sound at all like Lester Young, but he was a very um, adept and impressive improviser. It's he who created the first two choruses of the Basie recording of Harvard Blues, and uh, that was a, a bit of a hit for Basie at the time, and Don Bias had to re-record that any number of times and play that uh, for different parts of his life as well. Last but not least in this group is Trummy Young, who was probably the oldest player, or one of the oldest players. Uh, he was actually a contemporary of Clyde Hart. He was born in 1912, lived to 1984. And he had uh, come to people's attention by about 1934, when he was playing with the Earl Hines Big Band. His very brash trombone playing, uh, utilizing high notes and very fast runs, provided a kind of a, a different approach to that instrument than Jack Teagarden, for example, or any of the trombone players who were well known in the earlier part of that decade. Uh, from the Earl Hines Band, he went to play for several years with Jimmy Lunsford, where he was also a singer and an entertainer, and he was well known uh, for his recordings with that group. Then in the middle 1940s, or early 1940s, he played for a short time with Benny Goodman and with different combos on 52nd Street, uh, ending up 
hanging out with the bebop players. He had uh, the technique that he needed, uh, one needed to play bebop, and uh, he was embraced by those players as well. He made several early bebop sessions, including this one. And following that, he went with Louis Armstrong in 1952 and spent 12 years with the Louis Armstrong All-Stars and admitted that he had to change his style considerably to fit into a Dixieland ensemble. So the Trummy Young you're going to be hearing on these next four recordings are, or is a uh, very different one than the one you would hear on the Louis Armstrong All-Stars recordings from about 10, 15 years later. So we're going to listen to all four of these. I don't usually play four in a row, but I'm going to this time because I like these so much. And the four tunes that we're going to hear are I Can't Get Started, which Dizzy Gillespie is going to use as a ballad feature, which was fairly brave of him, considering the uh, ownership on that song that Bunny Berrigan had from his recording in 1936-37, even to the point where Louis Armstrong refused to record that in several points in his life because he said he couldn't improve on what Bunny Berrigan did. But Dizzy Gillespie brings a very different uh, perspective to the table on that. Following that, there's a tune called Good Bait, which was composed by Tad Dameron, the pianist and, and bebop composer. He was uh, freelance arranging around New York at the time, and he composed quite a few interesting tunes before he uh, put his own group together and uh, made some interesting recordings with that. Following that, we have Salted Peanuts, so-called. Came to be known as Salt Peanuts, of course, and that was by Dizzy Gillespie. And then we end up with another Dizzy Gillespie tune called Bebop, which shows off the uh, fast fingering and uh, fast execution of Dizzy Gillespie and Don Bias. So we're going to listen to four tunes by the Dizzy Gillespie Sextet.
Salt peanut, salt peanut. Salt peanut, salt peanut. Salt peanut, salt peanut.
Fine, fine bebop recording called Bebop. We'll start with I want to work our way backwards. Well, that was a feature for Don Bias and Dizzy Gillespie. Both of them took multiple choruses. You heard from Don Bias's solo, how uh, what a technical player he was and what harmonic awareness he had as well. There were not many swing era players who could have handled that assignment, Coleman Hawkins probably, but uh, Don Bias was even a little more fleeter of foot than Coleman Hawkins was playing in this style. He, uh, he was really an extraordinary player. He later went to Europe at, uh, towards the end of the 1940s and spent most of the rest of his life there. He had a series of recordings on uh, Savoy and some other smaller labels, both in America and in Europe. He had a minor hit with his version of Laura. He would do a recording session and record a couple of ballads and a couple of jazz tunes. He had a, a way with a ballad with that beautiful tone he had. And One of my favorite versions of Danny Boy was one that he did, and my other favorite is one that Ben Webster did. So you have an idea of the type of melodic tunes that attracted players of that generation. And then Dizzy came in and played three choruses, I think, on the way out, and just got more and more excitable as he went, but never out of control. He was not a, 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 a careening player. He uh, Every note meant something. He intended to, to play all the notes that he did, and uh, there was always quite a bit of theory and intellect backing up what he was doing. Before that, we had Salt Peanuts, called Salted Peanuts here, and again, Dizzy played a, a, a long solo on that, a full chorus, and in some ways I think that was the best solo of his of the date. It was very balanced and uh, quite well executed and, and well designed from beginning to end. And he followed a piano solo by Clyde Hart, which gives you an idea why the bebop players were uh, so interested in his playing. When he passed away just a couple of months after the session, of course that made room on all of these recording dates for some of the up-and-coming players like Thelonious Monk, like um, Bud Powell, like Al Haig, all of those different players that we associate with bebop. And before that, we had a good bait, a very uh, interesting tune by Tad Dameron with some, some neat harmonic motion just within an AABA chorus uh, and a very moderate tempo. Uh, Tad Dameron was not a great piano player, and so he didn't play a lot of fast stuff himself, and most of what he wrote tended to be very thoughtful, medium, or slow-tempo pieces. And that featured Trummy Young, uh, first half-chorus solo, and he shows off a little of his technique as well, uh, with some high notes that uh, were not uh, common to trombone players in a jazzy setting, maybe Tommy Dorsey in a ballad setting, but uh, Trummy would bring them in uh, and incorporate them into his improvisations. And we started out with I Can't Beli I Can't Get Started, the Vernon Duke and Ira Gershwin tune that was made uh, into a jazz classic by Bunny Berrigan about eight or nine years before this particular one. And here Dizzy Gillespie plays a completely different take on it, much slower, and uh, starts out with a very long introduction that winds its way through uh, a, a, a kind of a rangy harmonic pattern. We'll hear something like that in a few minutes when we hear Around Midnight. Uh, Dizzy did a similar introduction for that. 
So, that gives us the first four uh, tunes that uh, were recorded by the Dizzy Gillespie Sextet, without Charlie Parker, in this case. So, Dizzy and uh, Berg were playing many uh, gigs and recording sessions together, and they were getting ready to go out uh, to California, which they did in December of 1945, but they had some recordings before that as well. Uh, we're going to listen to a, a two-tune recording session by the Dizzy Gillespie Sextet, Completely different group, actually, uh, from February 9th of 1945, just about a month after the one we just heard. And this features Dexter Gordon on tenor sax. Dexter Gordon was playing uh, with some uh, progressive jazz groups, if you will, but I think at the time he was actually playing with Louis Armstrong's big band. He had been playing in that group for a while, and uh, he had been in many different places before he... Uh, was recognized as a great jazz improviser. He was a bit of a, of a late bloomer in terms of jazz improvisers. Chuck Wayne is the guitar player on here. He is one of the few uh, white players who was uh, accepted by the beboppers at the time. I mentioned Shelly Mann in the last session. Chuck Wayne was a very fine guitarist who uh, was influenced by uh, the bebop saxophone players, and that's the way he wanted to play. He had played some mainstream and even some Dixieland gigs and recording sessions in the 1940s, but his heart was with the bebop musicians, and he became quite an adept player. He lived from 1923 to 19. Uh, 97, and after his association with Dizzy Gillespie and some of these players, he went with Woody Herman. He also played with George Shearing and was Tony Bennett's music director for a while. So we're going to hear him playing some very interesting guitar solos. We have a fellow named Murray Shapinsky on bass. I think he was a studio player at the time. I don't know anything about him, but um, he plays the right notes at the right time, so there you go. And then another... Um, uh, white drummer, Irv Kluger, who was uh, an intimate of some of these bebop players as well, and he's uh, someone who made a few recordings around that time. But most interesting player on this recording is the piano player, whose name is given as Frank Paparelli. And I always thought Frank Paparelli was a pseudonym, but little internet research has turned up quite a bit about him, including a, uh, a website put together by his daughter, apparently. He was a uh, uh, a white uh, Italian piano player who went to Brown University. He was raised in Providence, Rhode Island, and graduated, I think, in the late 30s, early 40s, and came to New York and started playing gigs. Uh, he actually supported himself by doing transcriptions, and there are a number of transcribed jazz solo books out from that period uh, that were done, apparently, by Frank Paparelli. And I think he even did some uh, work for Downbeat and some of the publications as well. This is the only recording that I'm aware uh, of his being on, although the website mentions several. I'll have to go look them up. I don't ever recall running across his name in any other context. And if we listen to the piano playing on these two tunes, Groove and High and Blue and Boogie, uh, I'd be hard-pressed not to say it's Thelonious Monk. It certainly sounds like him, and this may have been part of the time when he was in uh, isolation. Monk had all sorts of problems, mental, physical, and otherwise, and uh, he had periodic times where he wasn't employable, and this might have been one of them, and maybe he was just brought into the recording studio to record these um, sides for the Guild label, another one of those small jazz labels. Um, Groove and High was a tune that was composed by Dizzy Gillespie and Frank Paparelli. Um, again, I always sort of felt like that was a pseudonym for Thelonious Monk to get Monk some income at different times, but apparently Frank Paparelli did indeed exist. I just question whether he is on this recording session. And then we're going to end up with Blue and Boogie by Dizzy Gillespie as well. So these were done in January, uh, January 9th of 1945 in New York for the Guild label, and uh, we're going to hear some very fine and very little-known bebop playing here.
those were pretty remarkable performances uh, with a, a group that probably worked together a little bit, although I don't know how much. Dexter Gordon, as I said, was playing with big bands. He had played with Lionel Hampton, and I think at the time he was with Louis Armstrong's band. And uh, who knows where some of the other players were from. I think Irv Kluger might have been playing with Woody Herman or, or Stan Kenton at the time. So this was probably just a pickup group. Um, the piano solo, as I said, sounds an awful lot like Thelonious Monk. If Frank Paparelli was imitating Monk, he must have been the only person in 1945 doing that, and what a remarkable mimic. Um, so I'm not sure about that. Monk's only other recording that I'm aware of before that was uh, four sides that he did with Coleman Hawkins the year before in 1944. So not so sure uh, who, who the piano player was. It certainly had a lot of monkish tendencies on it, and as I said, there was nobody imitating him at the time. So interesting question. And Dexter Gordon plays some interesting work there as well. He was uh, later came to be known as a very heavy, dark-toned saxophone player, sort of like Don Bias, um, playing ballads and things like that. But at this stage of his career, he was playing with a much lighter sound and sounded a lot more like Lester Young with that sort of uh, airy delivery and um, sort of riding on top of the beat more than he did later on in his career. He uh, spent a good deal of the 50s out of commission due to a heroin addiction and he was in jail and different things before he came back and started making some great albums in the 60s and then of course had his big renaissance in the 1980s with the movie uh, Round Midnight. So there's a little, uh, little curious bebop there as well. So Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie were still playing together all through that year, but as I said, Bird was pretty undependable. So even on dates where Dizzy had hired him, he usually had another player uh, hanging around just in case to come in and fill out the numbers if he was... Uh, responsible for providing six pieces. He needed six bodies up there, regardless of who they were. He and uh, Charlie Parker recorded with the All-Star Quintet in May of 1945. They made a couple of dates uh, with Charlie Parker's groups and uh, someone for Armed Forces Radio Service. They did quite a lot of recording on and off uh, uh, throughout that period. They eventually uh, took their group off of 52nd Street and went to open at Billy Berg's uh, restaurant in Los Angeles in December of 1945. And uh, they were met with stunning indifference. They uh, were not understood by the people out there, except by the musicians who had been listening to their recordings, but the audiences didn't have a clue what they were doing, and they were not popular at all. Dizzy, for his uh, money, went around and uh, sat in with other groups. He made some recordings with, for example, Wilbert Barranco and his Rhythm Bombardiers, which was a big band largely of ex-swing musicians or, or swing musicians who had been in other big bands who had ended up on the West Coast and just stayed. Um, and he did some other freelancing as well. And he, as, as I mentioned, had uh, a group with Charlie Parker at Billy Berg's. He always had an extra player there just in case because the California sunlight was very bad for Charlie Parker's addiction and uh, he apparently couldn't get the stuff that he was used to getting in New York, which caused withdrawal symptoms and all sorts of problems. He was living on the street for a while. They didn't know where to find him. It led to two years of, of, of pretty much hell for Charlie Parker, which uh, sent him into a rehab facility at Camarillo State Hospital. Um, although when he came out of that, he was in pretty good shape and made some of his best recordings and then went back to New York and proceeded to have even more problems after that. 
But Dizzy and his band uh, were engaged to make recordings in February of 1946, February 5th. And this was shortly before uh, they were supposed to head back to New York and Charlie Parker was supposed to be on it. He did actually show up on February 5th and they made exactly one recording. Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, a saxophonist named Lucky Thompson. Now Lucky Thompson was cut right out of the Don Bias mold. In fact, he replaced Don Bias with Count Basie. Uh, he was a uh, very, very fine saxophone player who played with a lot of different groups uh, in the 1940s, uh, bebop and otherwise as well. And uh, he was uh, somebody who absolutely was uh, well known at the time as a swing and as a bebop player. And he was there to sub if necessary, and uh, it became necessary. Also in this band were George Handy on piano, Arvin Garrison on guitar, Ray Brown on bass, and Stan Levy on the drums. I tell you all this for no reason, because I'm not going to play the one track that they recorded, which was Diggin' Diz. Um, it was not all that successful. Charlie Parker doesn't sound particularly good on the track. He sounded kind of... Um, in another world, shall we say. And they only did one track, and then I guess they abandoned the session. But the band was back in the studio, and they were recording for Dial Records, uh, which was uh, another small label that was um, centered in Los Angeles and also um, featured many early bebop players. This was done on February 7th, two days after the abortive date, with a slightly different band. We have Dizzy Gillespie again, who was billed as Gabriel, by the way. And uh, due to contractual reasons, some of these recordings were listed as by the Tempo Jazzmen featuring Gabriel on trumpet. So dizzy. Lucky Thompson was on tenor sax. The extra fellow this time was Milt Jackson on vibraphone, who was later to go on to play with Dizzy's big band and then go on to a very long career with the modern jazz quartet. Al Haig, who was another um, young white musician who embraced the bebop lifestyle and music uh, language, playing piano. Ray Brown was on bass. He too went with the Gillespie Band and was one of the charter members of the Modern Jazz Quartet. And Stan Levy on drums, and he, uh, we've encountered him before. And they recorded four or five tunes. We're going to listen to about three of them. We're going to hear Confirmation, which is a, a tune that Charlie Parker was featured on. He had some uh, portion of the writing credit for that, um, although uh, not sure how much of anything anybody wrote back in those days. This would be a little bit unusual for a Charlie Parker tune in that it really wasn't based on any particular song. It wasn't using the chord structure of I Got Rhythm or What Is This Thing Called Love or something like that. This is, as far as we know, a completely original composition. We're also going to hear uh, Diggin' for Diz. Uh, which was written by Dizzy Gillespie, and we're going to end up with another ballad performance, Round About Midnight, a.k.a. Round Midnight by Thelonious Monk, and uh, this will feature Dizzy again on a great ballad performance. So, three tunes by the Tempo Jazzmen featuring Gabriel on trumpet.
some interesting early bebop uh, by a group that was supposed to have included Charlie Parker, but did not. Nevertheless, some very compelling music there, and Dizzy Gillespie really comes to the fore on that session as a soloist. In terms of bebop trumpeters from that early period, no one could really touch Dizzy in terms of uh, just the confidence that he played with. His, his technique was really matchless, and it wasn't until people like uh, Clifford Brown came along, I think, that you could really have someone to compare to Dizzy Gillespie. Maybe Fats Navarro, although his career was so short, it's hard to tell. But uh, Dizzy was really everything on that. He's overshadowed by the um, romance and the mystery and the genius of Charlie Parker, but he was certainly right on the same level. So we heard confirmation at Charlie Parker tune that presumably this band had been using at its residency in, at Billy Berg's. Uh, it followed up with Diggin' for Diz, which is, give, which is credited to Dizzy Gillespie. However, interestingly, Dexter Gordon, who plays saxophone here, uh, recorded it years later on an album of his, and he took credit for it. So who knows who actually wrote that. And then we ended up with Round Midnight by Thelonious Monk. And that featured Dizzy Gillespie, of course, along with uh, Dexter Gordon playing some wonderful tenor sax. Milt Jackson drops in and out on vib uh, vibraphone. Al Haig on piano. And then Ray Brown and Stan Levy round out the rhythm section. So those were three of the five tunes that were recorded for that session, and it was only a couple of days later that the band returned to New York. They had a ticket for Charlie Parker, and he didn't show up to collect it. And As I said, he stayed for another year or two in, in, in something resembling hell um, with drug addictions and so forth in California before he finally made it out. The uh, Dizzy Gillespie band reunited in the studios on February 22nd, uh, so they were back pretty quickly and recorded one of the first bebop sessions for a large company, in this case RCA Victor. Uh, most of the big companies actually hadn't been recording because of the record ban at the time. Victor came to an agreement with the Musicians Union and was allowed to start making recordings, and on February 22nd, the Dizzy Gillespie band with Milt Jackson and Al Haig and Ray Brown, we just heard, went into the studio and did four tunes. They were abetted by Don Bias, who came back on tenor sax, 
and Bill Durango on guitar and J.C. Hurd on drums. And we're going to finish off the program with one tune from that session. This is uh, one of Dizzy Gillespie's finest compositions and one that he's always been associated with. He said he composed it in 1942, and it is called Night in Tunisia. So we're going to finish off the program with that, and we'll come back and discuss it a little bit in just a minute. That was Dizzy Gillespie's tune, A Night in Tunisia, which, interestingly, uh, is also credited to Frank Pepperelli, who we talked about earlier, although Dizzy Gillespie said that, uh, or somebody uh, in the know said that it was actually given to Frank Pepperelli in return for some services doing transcription work and that he had nothing to do with it. And Dizzy, in fact, said that he uh, wrote that in 1942. 
Um, it was first recorded by Sarah Vaughan as Interlude. She had some lyrics to that. And then, of course, the best-known version was by Charlie Parker. Uh, Miles Davis was the trumpet player on that one. They recorded that for Dial. But this one is really in some ways, uh, the best version, if not counting the great Charlie Parker solo, of course, but Dizzy sounds fabulous on this, and certainly a great Don Bias solo as well. So that's our little walk through Dizzy Gillespie's early recording career as a band leader over the course of about a year or so. Uh, he made all those sides, and we didn't even get to all of them, but got the idea of what it sounded like. So we hope you enjoyed this little trip down to the beginnings of bebop. So this has been the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. There are many more to come. I have one coming up on a blues singer named Maggie Jones. I'm going to be doing one on a traditional jazz band, Dixieland, New Orleans. This one is very hard to categorize. It's called the Anachronic Jazz Band. And I first heard this band listening to a program uh, by Ray Smith called the Jazz Decades that I mentioned on an earlier podcast. And this was a group that was active in France in the 1970s, and their shtick was playing bebop and later jazz tunes in a 1920s style. So we'll listen to a few tracks of that. Very oddball, unusual, but very well-played tracks. So, once again, with Jazz Focus, my name is John Clark, and I'll see you on the other side.